This episode of Radio Atlantic is brought to you by Microsoft Copilot for Security. In the age of AI, we're empowering security teams to better detect and better defend cyber threats. Stay tuned to find out how. This is Radio Atlantic. I'm Isaac Dover. This was a week when we were all talking about one thing, President Trump's tweets. Specifically, his tweets that four Democratic freshman congresswomen should go back, as he put it, to where they were from. They're all American citizens, by the way, and three of the four were born here. They're also all women of color. Here in the Atlantic newsroom and in many other newsrooms around the country, moments like these prompt hard questions. Do you call the president a racist? How do you not call the president a racist? Do you give him the attention he wants? And how do you modulate that, contextualize it, explain it? Margaret Brennan, the host of Face the Nation on CBS, had to figure that out in real time last Sunday morning. She was putting the final touches on her show right as the president's tweets landed and had to decide then, and in the preparation for this coming Sunday's show, how to handle it. She's a TV veteran. She's interviewed the president at length and covered other countries going through political crises. Experience that brings her to this week with a distinctive perspective. So we stopped by CBS's Washington Bureau on Friday to try to talk that through. Here's our conversation. Margaret Brennan, thanks for being here on Radio Atlantic. Thanks for talking to me here at CBS. (laughs) (laughs) Glad to have uh, you on your home turf. Let's go back to last Sunday. Uh, The tweets that started this whole week from the president came out early in the morning on Sunday. It was about two hours before Face the Nation went on the air. Walk me through what happens then. When you (laughs) you see those tweets come across, you've got a show to put on. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't ignore them, but you can't make the whole show about that, right? Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. I mean, I remember, you know, in that right before the show, you're in a crush of you've you've pretty much done most of the prep. You're at like 95% ready to go, but looking to see what else pops, what else has moved, what may be developing in the hours before you go on air and the president's tweet popped and I looked at it and I went, whoa, uh, wow. Okay. This is not. How often does that happen that you see a tweet that makes you say, wow, it's, (laughs) I think we've all become a bit callous. Um, so it's become less common, but there is a pattern Mm -hmm. that a lot of these tweets that are big statements do come Sunday morning right before the Sunday shows. <laughs> do you think um, that's on purpose? Is that what you're saying? A hundred percent. It is a conversation starter. It is a way to direct it. The president knows how powerful this is as a communications tool. It takes very little effort and he can switch the topics for main networks, which is why we make the choice and say, that's not what this show is. We are going to have a reasoned conversation about the things that matter of this week and try to curate and distill what those topics are, but sometimes you get what we saw and on Sunday morning and say, this has to be integrated. This isn't just a little bit of red meat that you can say, I see what it is and move on. It was something that not only did we feel had to be asked of our guests, but our guests brought it up. I had Jay Johnson, the former uh, Homeland Security chief on the show, and the very first thing he said was, I have to address this tweet um, because he was offended that the uh, Customs and Border Patrol chief 
acting chief who was on when I asked him what the president meant and whether uh, what his thoughts were said, I don't know. You have to ask the president. Typically, this is the answer. I haven't seen it. Don't know what he meant. Have to ask him. Yeah, it's this magical bubble that people seem to live in where they just don't know what Twitter is uh, on the days when the president tweets something. When he tweets something <laughs> like this, which is why I turned it more into, OK, let's look at what the operational sort of impact could be. Don't get stuck in the is he or is he not? And where do you fall on declaring the president's true intentions and what his heart says? It was just sort of, okay, practically speaking, doesn't this make it more difficult for you to get Democrats to work with you and all the things that you say you need Democrats for and ultimately say they're um, making uh, impossible for you to improve at the border? Um, and, and that is where I took the conversation uh, with um, the CBP chief. But it, it's something that continues to come up, and I know this Sunday we will be talking about it still. And what's the right balance to strike there, do you think? The president, a couple days before he sent the go-back tweets, uh, was at a social media summit that he hosted at the White House talking about how great it was. He would tweet things, and he can explode the conversation to determine what everybody's talking about. That's clearly what happened. We have spent a week talking about almost nothing else, even though many other things have been going on. Uh, and it seems like this is at least what he wants everybody to be talking about. Uh, there's a different question of whether this is actually in his political interest, but he thinks it's in his political interest. So what do you do? Are we just like dancing to the tune that he, uh, that he plays for all of us? That is one of the battles that I think um, people in the media need to be we are in the middle of is sort of still trying to take a deep breath, a step back. And on the Sunday programs, particularly in Face the Nation, we have the ability to, mm -hmm. to do that. That is our role in many ways. I don't want to be part of the cacophony. Um, you can get an opinion anywhere even when you don't want one right now <laughs> on television. I think you get an opinion everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> um, and so choosing what is important and people need to know versus what is interesting and shiny is something we're constantly adjusting to. When it's a tweet like that, it was so loaded um, that it wasn't just popping off right. of an opinion or a, a opinion on something that's totally just political. It, it was weighted with so many different... Um, things and speaks in so many different experiences. I mean, people heard that in different ways. And so having that conversation... A, a textbook example, literally, from the Equal Opportunity uh, Commission of what a racist statement could be, right? Uh, right. Like, go back home. is The government's guidelines uh, say that. So, like, it, literally... Right. From the textbook. <laughs> From the textbook, what the yeah. U.S. government says is yeah. is racist. And I think that's really interesting that it took conversations in each newsroom of the major organizations to have a serious conversation because we still know the power of words. And having that be a, a reasoned conversation to say, okay, if we use that term, if we use that label, what does that mean? And ultimately, our standards and practice folks in New York and all of us together came to a conversation point where it said, you can call the phrase what it is racist. 
uh, and not be labeling the president as such. Is that what does that distinction mean? Right. I, I mean, that, I, I I struggle with this too. Right. Do we say the statement is racist? That's a that's its own debate, right? Uh, and then if you come down on yes, the statement is racist. Then can a person who is not racist make a racist statement? Or like, right. where does where does the transit of property kick in? <laughs> and and also, of course, it's not like this is an incident in itself. No. Uh, I mean, I, I was uh, doing something on MSNBC on Sunday afternoon after a couple hours after the tweets, and they said, "Well, are you surprised by this?" And I said, "Well, no. I mean, this is part of how the president thinks about things. The go back seems to me connected to." Uh, birtherism directly, which is like you're from Kenya. You're just go. It's it's all that. Mm-hmm. I don't know what do you, what do you make of it. I'm struggling with it myself. I think we all are, and I think you're hearing that even among the president's most, uh, you know, I don't want to say ardent supporters, but some of his allies in the Republican Party, and as CBS has reported, his own family members, his wife, who is uh, the first lady of this country, is an immigrant. The first daughter, Ivanka Trump is the daughter of an immigrant. The president is the son of an immigrant. The the president is the son of an immigrant. Um, And so the fact that his family members uh, went to the president, as we reported, and said, we didn't like what happened at the rally. It's almost like over the course of the week, as we went from that tweet Sunday morning through what happened midweek at the uh, rally in North Carolina, where the president, again, was bringing up these congresswomen uh, and criticizing them, and then the crowd starts chanting back, mm-hmm. you know, go home and send her home. Send yeah. her home. Um, that crossed the line. That seemed to chill people a little bit to hear that and to see it and have it associated with the party. That I think yeah. is where the shift happened for some Republicans who were struggling the ch- with the what chanting you're at the rally. About. The chanting at the rally. It seems like that's the same way that the locker up chants started though, and that has just become part of the fabric of a Trump rally, right? The overlay of the fact that there have been death threats against this particular congresswoman, I think, make it hard to separate that this could be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been interesting to watch some of the president's supporters try to split the hair here and say, well, I don't like what that congresswoman does, and I disagree with her politically, and I don't like the things that she's said in her language, but maybe this is a bridge too far. Yeah. Trying to have it both ways there. Um, well, I mean— it- Look, it's possible to have disagreements politically. Exactly. And Ilhan Omar is not someone who is uh, a, a shrinking violet. Uh, not and uh, is not someone whose politics are uh, mainstream. No. Uh, but uh, she's also not someone who is attacking America in the way that uh, some of her uh, critics, opponents, whatever you want to call them, have, have said. Uh some of what one way of reading what she said, and this is maybe people might find it too generous, is that she is a re- came here as a refugee and feels like America has fallen short of the principles that she was told uh, America stuck to when she was becoming a citizen. Uh, but one way or the other, she <laughs> has a lot of strong views and expresses them, not always uh, very easily. Uh, mm-hmm. The the whole. Uh, flood that she got in over the APAC comments uh, earlier in the year are a demonstration of that. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like she is a freshman member of Congress who now the president has put a at least giant rhetorical target on her and maybe more than that, right? 
And it's interesting because you talk about the political ramifications of that. And, and I don't mean to in any way separate the humanity of this, that these these comments, particularly to anyone who has immigrants in their family, um, receives them in a, a, a hurtful way if there is a difference drawn on, well, where you came from mm-hmm. originally and whether that somehow makes you more or less American. That is a real thing, and the weight of history is there. But on the political side of this, too, it's it's this interesting dynamic, and we spoke about that immediately on Sunday, which was, so this progressive, very liberal uh, per- part of the party, represented in some ways by Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and the squad, as they're called. Right. The squad, and it should, the tweet said they should go back home. It wasn't just she should go back right, home. They. And they, and the other three of them were all born in America. Right, exactly. <laughs> so The commonality being right. they are brown or black. Right. Um, so that's why it was heard by some people to say, wait, if mm-hmm. I'm an immigrant and I'm brown or black, does that make me less American than somebody right. else? Or I, if that, I'm not an immigrant and I'm brown or black. Right, right. right. And that is where the... The painful part of that is, um, and and as uh, Kamala Harris called it, the un-American part mm-hmm. of that is. Um, but on the, those were her words, but on the political side of it, it creates this weird dynamic where all of a sudden this um, person who is, as you say, a freshman and other freshmen around her become this representative of the Democratic Party when they are not. They are on the edges of it. Uh, and and one way or the other, they are four freshman members of the House. Right. <laughs> right. So, like four members of the House don't usually matter in any way, no, no. matter who they are. And it comes in this moment when they were arguing right. vocally. <laughs> there were cracks among the Democratic caucus uh, from their own leadership. Speaker Pelosi, remember, that was that argument that was playing out up until the president said this. So the speculation was, oh, so now does this unify Democrats right. as the president against his own interests? The other side of that is that the president knows what the symbolism is and that Democrats now have to rally around someone who they don't necessarily think represents the rest of the party. Right. And is this the... Is that useful? And people say, oh, maybe this is the 3D chess going on, which seems like a little bit uh, much. The, the one thought I had when we have this debate over language, too, is when you get to... Can you call the phrase racist and the rhetoric racist, which is what CBS did do... It was reminiscent to me of that Clinton era debate and follow me here at the State Department about labeling what was happening in Rwanda at the time, the mass killing acts of genocide mm-hmm. rather than genocide. Mm-hmm. Because if you call it genocide, you kind of have to do something about it. <laughs> right. So, so, Legally. OK. So then take me through. The, so the, how many the, acts come back? What, what is what, because it sparked this debate? How many acts of genocide add up to genocide? Right. How many racist comments add up to racism. Now you have this forced conversation and debate that has nothing to do right now truly with policies that remain, um, you know, stuck before Congress or undelivered on on the campaign trail or real questions for the people who want to be in the Oval Office. Now we're talking about whether something is or isn't racist rather than everything else around it and, and the guts of the policies. And, and that's this thing we're all caught in. So is there a point where you, that acts of racism add up to racism and you have to do something about it? To... <laughs> right? That's, isn't that where we go next? Do you do something about that? Or does that, we, do we get we, stuck Or in do this. we accept that we have a president who says, 
things that are racist. That's a really hard thing to wrap your head around. Uh, and, and maybe it shouldn't be that hard anymore. Maybe that's, uh, I'm sure some people listening would say like, well, you guys should accept it already. We're going to take a short break. Be back with Face the Nation's Margaret Brennan in just a moment. We're entering a new era of security. Cyber threats are escalating rapidly. And while tech alone can't eliminate every threat, it can empower security teams to quickly respond to incidents at scale. Microsoft is transforming the industry by innovating to arm teams with the resources necessary to outpace adversaries and operate at machine speed. Microsoft Copilot for Security, powered by generative AI, works alongside defenders. Stay tuned to learn more about Copilot's capabilities after the episode. The New York Times TV critic wrote this, uh, he tweeted this on Monday, a real problem is that politics in Trump's era has taken on a moral dimension that news outlets either aren't equipped to cover or think it's their duty to avoid. And if they avoid it, they avoid their job, which is to accurately represent to their audience what's happening. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? <laughs> I think <laughs> I think this is a really, really difficult conversation. It was a difficult conversation when we had it about Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this, at this point in the campaign, does not bode well for where we are going until that election night in, um, in 2020, I think. Why not? What do you think? That, what is that that you... I think it's going to be dirty. I think it's going to be hard. I think it's going to be rough. I think it's going to be um, some of this uh, where, you know, you you hear and you feel from people frustration and anger and constantly the calls to bridge the partisan divide but then these fractures Mm -hmm. um, that are constantly being sort of found Um, and I I think it's an interesting conversation because beyond that the language and beyond the debate about you know who we want to be as a country there are these bigger society-wide conversations to be having about massive social change, income inequality, uh, that you also see just changes in the workforce. Mm -hmm. Um, Are are Americans equipped to be, uh, you know, dealing with the economy that we are heading towards technologically, the race that uh, the U.S. is facing off versus China on, all these big-picture questions about where we're headed as a country and we're not really having them much. We're not having them at all. At really, all. Really, right? And, like, this is a week that was consumed by, are these tweets racist? What does it mean that they are right. racist? But you know what happened over the course of that week is, like, it was another week of China progressing on all the fronts that they were progressing on that is a week that we don't get to make up, right? Right. And, uh, and automation proceeding, to your point, or, or changes in the economy, or people who are just uh, trying to figure out what they're going to do to pay their bills that are not happening on Mm -hmm. the level of us having this obviously very important and deep conversation that goes to the root of what America is, right? Exactly. And and that's, I wonder too, when people talk about the lessons of 2016 and the campaign and covering it, all these things that are important and weighty and, and need to be discussed, how do we also know what is 
you know, resonating with people and giving it its full weight and its full importance. 2016 trade was not covered and not handled with the level of importance that it should have been. Um, you know, I spent a decade covering <laughs> Wall Street and financial news, and so I I clearly was interested in that. Um, and I think you clearly saw from Bernie Sanders to President Trump how that resonated with their voters uh, and the frustration and the feelings of income inequality and dislocation. That message, how is that being covered now? How are we bringing that into the conversation now? We're talking maybe about trade deals happening or not happening, but what about the underlying issues yeah, What there? happens? To- There's so much, I think, just for us, books are going to be written about how we as journalists, how we as a society, how these institutions are trying to cover these changes, but also the incoming. <laughs> right, just missing it because the, because you can't keep up. But everything, right, this is the, the issue is that no matter what, whenever you make a journalistic uh, choice, you're making a choice to cover one thing versus another thing, right? You have mm-hmm. the guests that you put on versus other guests, right? Uh, you, you'll have Cory Booker on this weekend. You could have had literally two dozen other presidential candidates. <laughs> um, there's a reason why you wanted to have Booker on, and it makes sense in the context of this. Uh, but no matter what, when I write a story, I'm deciding I'm going to put my time into that versus anything else. Mm-hmm. But so when we look at... Which covering, also doesn't necessarily mean some of these things aren't covered. It's just maybe you're not finding it. Maybe it's on the back page. Right. Maybe it's on the website or it's a reader sure. and a broadcast. But, but like, I, I mean, I, I don't think it makes me a biased journalist, but I, I personally don't think that there's, like, such a thing truly as objectivity because I'm making a choice that this is worth my time to cover and saying to the people who read my articles, you, this is what I'm providing for you today or this week or whatever, uh, rather than any of the other things, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have to make a decision when we cover these tweets or cover this uh, ongoing incident of what to do and what to say, again, uh, we're doing maybe what the president at least politically wants us to do. Well, it's um, whether it's the president or it's the, the people auditioning to be the next mm-hmm. president, I think certainly on Face the Nation, we have this conversation throughout the course of the week about separating the interesting and the important. Mm-hmm. Um and, and what happened Sunday was the interesting was also important in, mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, but it's often difficult as well to, to cover in the right way. Um, I mean, it's Face the Nation. It's supposed to be a serious conversation. It's and a 65-year it right. institution. <laughs> so what do you, <laughs> is it hard to have a serious conversation in the middle of these things? To have the reason to step back uh, as you want to do it? Uh, we have. And we've had the editorial support to be able to still make those choices. The example I'd point to is how I handled that on Sunday, the mm-hmm. tweet. It wasn't, tell me what is in the president's heart, you yeah. representative of the administration, or you Democrat, you defend all Democrats. Mm-hmm. The life isn't that black and white. It's more gray. Yeah. Uh, there is more nuance to it. And, okay, so... I'm not going to make you pick a side on what label you put on the president, but I am going to point out that this makes it hard for you to deliver on what the president says he wants to do mm-hmm. and to get Democrats to work with you. That's the dot that is that, that you can connect that makes it relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing those things and, and I, I think is where the moderator in the conversation, the responsibility lies to not tell the audience 
viewers and consumers of the news we're putting out there what's important so much as how it impacts them possibly. Um, that's where we're making those choices. And so I'm not going to spend necessarily eight minutes on, well, are, is he or is he yeah, not? It's called the people. The, and you they, can they, find they... that on a number of different <laughs> channels and blogs and Twitter. That's not face the nation. Yeah. Um, face the nation is understood. And I think I have faith in our viewers that when they hear a talking point that is just a talking point, that they know what is authentic and what is not. And if I will point out a fact that contradicts that, pointing that out, it's an interjection Mm -hmm. um, of fact into a conversation that may not be, um, that may be very emotional. And, And that's how I filter it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, let's talk about facts for a second uh, as it relates to this. The president was on Wednesday night in North Carolina at that rally, uh, and the crowd started chanting, send her back. Uh, as you were saying, it, that seems to have been too much for uh, a lot of people who were having trouble distancing themselves before that. Uh, we're told from your reporting, from other reporting, that uh, Ivanka Trump and Melania Trump were among the people who interceded as well as Mike Pence. And then the president on Thursday in the Oval Office said, oh, well, I didn't like this chance. I, 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 and I tried to stop him. And the uh, tape shows a different. Yeah. So what do you do then? He's not. It, it is just not true. And there's video evidence of it. He stands back from the microphone for, I think it's 12 or 14 seconds, letting the chance go on. And the way that he said in the Oval Office was, oh, well, you saw I spoke pretty quickly to stop it. But that's not what happened. So what do we do? Go to the tape. (laughs) Um, Go to the tape. Go to the established facts as you can. Um, I I, I think there are a few things on this, but we will do that. Mm -hmm. We will go to the tape, show that. What is interesting is you look at this and the choices the president makes and doesn't and how he explains his actions. And over the course of the week, he has continued to tweet about it. He has continued to talk about it. He's been continuing asked about it by journalists. So it's a story that we didn't move on from um, and that many around the president also didn't think should be just moved on from. Um, But he didn't say, wait a second, in that moment or a few days later, that sentiment is wrong. That rhetoric is wrong. A United States Congresswoman who has sworn an oath to this Constitution is a United States Congresswoman, and she is just as American as anyone else. That is a phrase that could have been uttered, and that choice was not made. The choice instead was about explaining the actions or putting a different cast on them. And so that makes it more about the president than about the principle, Mm -hmm. and that's where we get stuck sometimes, I think, as a country where it continues to be about the the president, the person, and not about the principle itself. But we didn't really hear from a lot of elder party statesmen standing up and saying that. We didn't really hear from any Republican states, elder party statesmen saying that. No, you had some, like Marco Rubio tweeted a video of himself saying he didn't like the sentiment, he didn't like the chant, grotesque, I believe is the word he used. But but stopping short, stopping that's, short, and that's then going I mean. on yeah. to say, I don't like, you know, whether it's a curse word or it's 
uh, phrases that Ilhan Omar has said that she denies were anti-Semitic, but certainly were perceived as anti-Semitic. And it just takes you down another rabbit hole going that way. Yeah. Um, but I think that's interesting as a choice um, that the president, and maybe he will, as we saw in the in the wake of Charlottesville, there were different statements and evolution of those over a few days. Does the evolution matter, you think? Or is it just like, don't we know where he stands on this? It's the argument can be made. The language always matters and, and <laughs> setting it's setting the record straight. But yes, did, which which version um, yeah. do you trust and do you go with? But it also provides a lot of political cover for anyone trying to make the race for the White House right now, where where's your nuanced conversation about all the policy proposals you're actually putting out there? Right. They instead can work in this realm of. Racist, not racist. Mm-hmm. Right. Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are back and forth about Medicare for all this week. Well, nobody's paying attention to that, right? I went to a speech that Bernie Sanders gave in Washington. It was an hour-long speech. Uh, he went through in some detail uh, why he thinks it's the, the system as it is needs to go and why he likes the system that he wants to put into place. And he thinks it, he promised that uh, you could have Medicare for all in place in four years. No problem, uh, which is a big promise. Huge. Well, uh, <laughs> that would be something that in another circumstance, right. probably a big and active democratic field would be debating more, much more actively. And instead it was people condemning Donald Trump and standing by Ilhan Omar and the other mm-hmm. members of Congress who were attacked. Which is not a full conversation about where our country is headed. And it's, does that mean we are as a country doing the same thing that happened in the last race where there was this, you know, armchair quarterbacking after the fact to say, well, blame the media for covering mm-hmm. these rallies, <laughs> right. blame the media for covering these things, blame, blame the media for looking at the shiny object over here. We got shiny objects all around us right now. Who is, you know, directing it towards the substance as well? So when we have Senator Booker on the program on Sunday, Will we talk about this issue of the week? Yes, we will, particularly given his focus that his entire message is about the soul of this country, as he phrases mm-hmm. it, and love being the, the best and bringing way people to back counter yeah. um, controversy and crisis and, and hate. Does that resonate right now as a message? Does he need to sharpen his tone um, to look like he can challenge the president in a way that... Uh, on, a, on a debate stage potentially um, and win, but also we will get to the rest of what is happening with his agenda. I you're going to talk about have, his gun plans and I mean, like, right? Like that's that's. I a will big try part. to get to <laughs> at least one policy it's matter, tough. if not two, if yeah. not three. But yes, in a in a live extended interview, you make those choices and you make yeah. those conversation choices as you're having it it's you're calling audibles the whole time as the moderator as the host to respond and to listen to what someone has said that's the beauty and the challenge of live television (laughs) but um it's also one of the few places where as a country i think we can go right now and yes i'm talking my own book but i do firmly believe that sunday shows and face the nation are one of the few places you can do that where else can you have seven eight nine minute conversation with follow-up questions right here this well there you go (laughs) besides a podcast uh, where, you know, right now it's it's the hot take, it's the tweet, it's yep. a video clip. There's not a lot of follow-up or nuance or, but wait, how does that actually work being yeah. asked when someone throws those bumper sticker slogans out there? So that's how I view the role is don't get 
too sucked into those rabbit holes. Give them their due, address them, but also get to the the kitchen table issues that people are worried about. And in our polling, consistently, yeah. healthcare, as you were just laying out with Medicare yeah. for All, how that's going to work. Climate change, you know, these things that are huge, complicated problems. And matter to voters, yeah. and they're and, telling and us. And will matter, matter in their lives, have a, to do with what uh, literally life and death issues are. Right. Uh, it just, I, I have found myself learning over time not to, you sort of pull yourself away from Twitter. But now, like whenever the president tweets something, whatever it is, but certainly when it's anything like this, you see so many people, whether they're activists or uh, politicians on one side, but also journalists who like want to get one good line and one good quick analysis of the tweet retweeted and hope for, oh, you're going to get a thousand retweets off of that? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and when you can break yourself away from that. The sound of your own voice. Yeah. The, the retweeting of your own tweet. <laughs> there's a great, yes. uh, uh, Aziz Ansari has a Netflix special that just came out and there's a, there's a moment where he says like, oh, did you guys see all the thing about like the, the pizza place that made the swastika out of pepperoni? And he gets the, <laughs> the crowd to start like, oh, did, did you guys, did you see the swastika? And some people cheer and you know, did, how many people didn't see the swastika? And then he asked somebody in the audience, he goes, you saw it? And he said, yeah. And he goes, I just made that story up. Why did you think you needed to have an opinion about that? Right? And he says, like, that's what's going on. And it's true. Right. right? Having a hot take. Yeah. And I think, and CBS across the platforms right now has rededicated itself to saying, look, you know, and particularly with Face the Nation, Mary Hager, the executive producer, and myself constantly have this conversation of, you know, separating the interesting from the important, giving context, having a conversation. We're not casting a Republican and Democrat to go shout at each other. Mm -hmm. You can get that a lot of places, and you frankly probably don't learn anything at the end of that. And I want people at the end of the program to learn something about that. And it is a moderator. You Mm -hmm. are not turning in to hear my opinion. If I'm giving you an opinion, I'm not doing my job, right? right? I I don't. Um, It's frankly the job to be giving... Everyone a hard time. Yeah. <laughs> that is the privilege of this position. <laughs> so that they all think that you are a pain. And if that's true, then then you're doing it right, right? Or, or at least push people yeah. past uh, the slogans, past the 140 characters. Do you, so what do you, uh, you have had the experience of interviewing Donald Trump. I have not interviewed Donald Trump. I've asked him questions in uh, groups of reporters. With what you think of it as the way that you go about asking questions, what you're trying to get out of it. What was that experience of trying to get that from the president? President Trump is a fascinating person to interview. Um, He's very tough to prepare for as well. I think he's someone who just as I had been a White House correspondent Mm -hmm. covering him from the day one of the administration before I became moderator. And I always learned that reading the transcripts of his remarks is something I did, but I had to hear him. I had to hear... so much in the delivery. It's so much in the delivery. It's the phrasing. It's the intonation. You really have to hear him to get where he's going uh, or what he's implying. Um, So I think, you know, television is his medium, but certainly hearing him out and being able to follow... things up with him is a privilege to be able to interview a president, but particularly this president, 
I'd had the experience of standing in that scrum with other White House reporters shouting questions when he goes to board Marine One. What happens in that moment? That is a choice. That is a choice to say, I heard your question. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear yours. Mm -hmm. You can choose to be in control over who you're responding to. What? Can't hear you over the engine. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Sorry. Um, (laughs) And move on. That is something that is different from the setting of a briefing room where there's a large level of decorum and calling on people where, you know, it it may not be as um, fast moving, but allows you to have that that give and take. When you're sitting down across from him as an interviewer, there are so many things that go on. But I made the choice that I wanted to stay focused on a, a set number of topics. Whittling that down was really hard and be able to push for answers on them. What That sounds basic, but it's actually very challenging to stay on that initial topic because the president moves quickly. He jumps topics, sometimes within the same paragraph, same issues, jumping to a completely different one. or And it's a way of, of challenging the interviewer because you, you go down different pathways and rabbit holes maybe away from the original conversation and knowing point. that people are going to be watching that and saying like i can't believe brennan let him get exactly with that. and <laughs> look that was one of the things i've also had to learn right um you get incoming from literally everyone on what why didn't she argue with him on this right. why did she let him get away with this and yeah. again i'm not an activist and i'm not there to debate debate i am there to pull information out and to get that that closest uh, you know <laughs> approximation of the truth Um, and new information. And I think we did accomplish that. I thought it was also really interesting. And my colleague, Leslie Stahl uh, of 60 Minutes, who was the first female moderator of Face the Nation, I spoke with her before our interview in February around the time of the Super Bowl. And I said, okay, so how did it go when you have interviewed the president? She's had a number of exchanges with him. And it was really helpful to think through what that was going to be from moment one. Mm -hmm. Who was going to walk into the room that day and sit across from Mm -hmm. me? Was it going to be at that time someone who felt defeated by the 35-day government shutdown that had just happened, Mm -hmm. where at the end of it he didn't get the... Because we should place this. This was the Super Bowl Exactly. This was a Super Bowl (laughs) interview um, coinciding with the fact that CBS had the broadcast rights for the the big game. (laughs) And we were having, as always happens with the Super Bowl, record numbers of people tune in. So it's a great opportunity for the president and has been um, kind of a tradition right. to give an interview with the host network because you reach so many people. Yeah. And we certainly did that day. And he walked in not defeated, also not necessarily doing a victory lap. The president turns defeats into mm-hmm. what he says are victories for him. Um, he was on the attack from the get-go on Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker mm-hmm. of the House, who had not delivered the things he was demanding of Democrats at the time on immigration. But I didn't stay there. I moved into other things, and particularly national security policy, that we don't really ever hear the president with follow-up mm-hmm. questions, really. Um, and so I learned from that interview. I thought it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And the best feedback I got was tough but fair, which is kind of the best you can hope for. That's the best you can hope for. Let me close with this. You have spent uh, some of your career before this job doing foreign affairs uh, reporting. Uh, A question that sometimes comes up, uh, certainly in a week like the one that we've had, is what if it were happening in another country? How would we report on it? Mm. If what was going on with President Trump 
what was going on with the the way the opposition party is going through this. So if you can, put yourself in those shoes. If you were seeing what we've seen in the last week in America go on somewhere in Europe, in Asia, Africa, how do you think we'd be thinking about it? I think it's an interesting question because I think some of what is happening here is happening elsewhere, different ways, different mm-hmm. contexts. But at this moment, um, what we have seen, certainly it's a story I've covered going back to the European debt crisis when I was covering financial news, when you saw these fissures surfacing, coming out of economic strain, where you saw rise of nationalism, rise of populism, different conversations about what's worth spending taxpayer dollars on or not, whether someone deserves help or not, well, who's to blame for it. These conversations started bubbling up back then mm-hmm. and covered them critically, certainly when they were starting to bubble up in Greece. Mm-hmm. It's a different thing here because Americans... We love to think we're the center of the world. Even if the story's not about us, we make it about us. <laughs> and as someone who covered things overseas quite a lot, I, I know that. I get it. It's the American conceit. Uh, we are the most powerful economy in the world, the most powerful military in the world, but it is not about us all the but time. But if you saw a foreign leader saying that some member of his or her government should leave the country, right? What, I mean, how would we... if that? Uh, I don't even know if it's worth trying to right. pick a country where that would happen, but a country where sure. that happened. No, issues that you saw bubble up in Germany and Italy mm-hmm. in the wake of the migrant crisis, where it became what defined you as German, what defined you as Italian. Mm-hmm. All those nationalistic tones, that overlay of extreme nationalism is a really dangerous thing. Um, and sometimes we don't have the historic reference quite as fresh in our minds as perhaps others in Europe do. Um, with that, but but you are seeing some of that yeah. come up, um, and in the UK right now, you you know it was interesting getting the, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom was being asked about commenting on President Trump. World leaders are being asked, mm-hmm. and I think what's so unique about the American experience and the American example is it it is an example, or it it has been up to this point in terms of values and principles and laying out the Western ideals that Vladimir Putin tells us are in decline in the West. Mm-hmm. So these conversations suggest maybe he's, uh, his predictions, they support his argument, right? That we're having these really ugly, messy conversations. The optimistic tone to put on all of this is you have to have the conversation to move beyond it. Um, but what would we be covering? I think we'd Probably CBS would make the same decision in terms of having the debate and then the decision to go with calling the rhetoric what it was, which was racist, but not to call the president that because that is not your value judgment. That is not knowing what someone's uh, heart, bones or mind truly are. But facts and establishing that in a historical context is important. And that's what we did. All right, so you went for, in that answer from pessimism to optimism to facts, which I think is a good place to end it. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, Margaret Brennan, thanks for being here on Radio Atlantic. Thank you. That'll do it for this week of Radio Atlantic. Thanks to Kevin Townsend for producing and editing this episode, and to Catherine Wells, the executive producer for Atlantic Podcasts. Our theme music is The Battle Hymn of the Republic, as interpreted by John Baptiste. 
You can find show notes and past episodes at theatlantic.com slash radio. And if you like the show, rate and review us at Apple Podcasts and subscribe in your preferred podcast app. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. This episode of Radio Atlantic is brought to you by Microsoft Copilot for Security, completely integrated into your organization's security infrastructure. This AI companion is informed by 78 trillion signals daily to help you catch the threats others miss and reinforce your team's security posture efficiently. It synthesizes data from numerous sources and can analyze 500 lines of code in under a minute to put critical guidance at defenders' fingertips. It helps teams detect threats and take action in minutes instead of hours or days, which can reduce attack investigation time by up to 40%. Copilot also serves as a key second pair of eyes, upskilling junior analysts with advanced capabilities, which frees up senior staff to focus on strategic priorities, all while safeguarding your data privacy. Learn more at microsoft.com slash copilot for security.